see. All right. Okay. All right. The book of Ecclesiastes begins with its conclusion when the, when the author states in chapter 1 and verse 2, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Motivated by this literary style, common in Jewish literature, I'm going to give you my conclusion at the beginning as well, so you'll know very clearly when we finish this study. The conclusion, death comes for us all. You're going to want to stick around for that. Hopefully we all make it. Are we having trouble with the PowerPoint, Paul? Oh, my bad. I didn't know. I had to press it. I'm so sorry. There we go. My bad. I thought it needed to come up first. My apologies. Well, since we've gotten that out of the way, let's return very briefly to the verse we've already read, and I'm going to introduce you to or reacquaint you to uh, two Hebrew words that are important in our study of Ecclesiastes. One of them is that word, Ecclesiastes, which is actually a Greek translation of the Hebrew title. The Hebrew Bible titles the book of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet. Um, You might remember Brian Wilson used this word referencing the speaker when he taught through chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes, as well as did Pastor Jim, who pointed out this word sometimes has a definite article attached to it, as it does in chapter 1, verse 2, where it is translated as, quote, the preacher. Later in verse 12 of the first chapter, the preacher introduces himself. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. Here, the speaker identifies himself as Kohelet. The actual Hebrew word is probably best translated as the one who assembles, or the one who gathers, or the one who collects. In English, we would probably translate this as the assembler, the gatherer, or the collector. However, someone who gathers people together to teach them is often called a teacher, or possibly a preacher, and that's how we get the Greek translation of the title, which is then borrowed from the Septuagint version, Septuagint translation, which is then used for our English title. Uh, There are a number of men in the Hebrew Bible who are known for assembling, one of which is Solomon, who no doubt leads the possible candidates for authorship. Um, Reading in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1, then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel. That word assembled is the same root word or lemma as Kohelet. As I said a moment ago, Solomon wasn't the first to gather or to assemble, nor was he the last. The list of leaders that gather seems significant and might provide a clue for solving the cryptic and enigmatic authorship issue you've heard several of us men discuss. Well, here's a list of the assemblers and the verses that cite their assembling. Um, We have Moses, David, uh, Solomon, uh, Rehoboam, Asa, Uh, Jehoshaphat, and Hezekiah. That was Hebrew word number one. Are you ready for Hebrew word number two? The second word of significance in this study is the word hevel, right? Sometimes it's spelled with a B as well. Um, uh, We already introduced it in the introduction conclusion, but for a reminder, it appears 38 times in uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, beginning in verse two again. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
That's five occurrences right there. Translators don't always agree on the meaning of the word either, as it has very situational uses, apparent usually in the context. For example, in chapter 14, uh, in chapter 14 of verse 8, we see, uh, there it is, uh, doesn't get translated as vanity, but rather gets translated as futility. There is futility, a hevel, which is done on the earth, that is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility or a hevel. Never mind for a moment that the word vanity has a self-centered meaning to most English speakers, though it doesn't have to. The secondary definition of the word, of the word uh, vanity is the quality of being worthless or futile. That definition is actually really good, I think, but maybe not the same as what, the way we generally use that word vanity. Let's take a look at how that word is translated in a few different versions, a few different translations of Scripture. First, the King James Version translates it as vanity. The NIV chooses meaningless. The NASB 1995 goes with vanity. The NASB 2020 chooses the word futility instead. The Good News translation chooses useless. And the Net Bible uses simply futile. The award for the most literal translation, though, you guessed it, the message, which uh, the message translates hevel as smoke, which is the literal Hebrew word, which sometimes gets translated as breath, smoke, vapor, or steam in other parts of the Hebrew Bible. The translation leans into the mysterious, enigmatic quality of smoke and might aid in our understanding of the often cited phrase in the book, chasing the wind. Think of smoke as something clearly visible, yet unable to be grasped, unpredictable in its movement. In other words, it's hevel, and its usage leans into that metaphor. Lastly, regarding translation comparisons, you might not be aware that the Bible was translated into Hawaiian Creole English as spoken by 600,000 residents of Hawaii, which is their primary language. That translation chooses the best contextual usage of Hevel, in my sincerely honest opinion, when it says that nothing makes sense. It's Hevel. The Net Bible provides this lengthy translation note, which I'm going to read for us. The, word, the noun Hevel is, this is the quote, the noun Hevel is the key word in Ecclesiastes. The root is used in two ways in the Old Testament, literally and figuratively. The literal, concrete sense is used in reference to the wind, man's transitory breath, and evanescent, evanescent excuse me, vapor. In this sense, it is often a synonym for breath or wind. The literal sense lent itself to metaphorical senses. Firstly, breath, wind, vapor is non-physical, evanescent, and lacks concrete substance, thus the connotation unsubstantial, profitless, fruitless, worthless, pointless, and futile. Secondly, breath, vapor, and wind is transitory and fleeting, thus the connotation fleeting or transitory. And thirdly and lastly, breath, wind, and vapor cannot be seen, thus the idea of obscure, dark, difficult to understand, or enigmatic. 
The metaphorical sense is used with the following synonyms, empty, vanity, worthless, and profitless. It is used in reference to youth and vigor and life, which are transitory or fleeting. The most common parallels to Hevel in English, I'm sorry, in Ecclesiastes, are the phrases chasing after the wind or what profit. It is used in references to enigmas in life and to, future, and to the future, which is obscure. It is often used as an antithesis to terms connoting value, like good, benefit, advantage, profit, or gain. Because the concrete picture of the wind lends itself to figurative connotation, futile, the motto, this is futile, is often used with the metaphor, like striving after the wind, a graphic picture of the expenditure of effort in vain because no one can catch the wind by chasing it. Although it is the same, it is the key word in Ecclesiastes, it should not be translated the same in every place, end quote. Before I move on to verse, the first two verses, though, I want to draw attention Uh, I'm sorry, before I move away from the first two verses, I want to draw attention to the way this expression is structured. That is, vanity of vanities. Um, This structure is apparent all throughout Scripture, just with different words in the blanks. Blank of blanks is meant to show the superlative nature of the thing that is being considered. For example, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, God of Gods, Holy of Holies, and Song of Songs. The idea then would be that the song of songs is the greatest of songs, for example, and that God is better than all other lowercase g gods, for example. Sticking with the idea of structure, I'd like to also comment on the structure of the book of Ecclesiastes generally. This is one book in which the structure of the text provides some insight as to how it should be understood. We've already mentioned that the bulk of the book is a sort of teaching of Kohelet that fills most of chapter 1 and well into chapter 12, but another voice makes an appearance at both the beginning, middle, and end of the book. Let's look at the first two verses of chapter 1. The the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Let's focus in on that phrase, says the preacher. These words are not typically the way one would speak. Let me give you an example. Says the Ben, right? Doesn't sound sensible or reasonable. And we might chalk this up to a scribal preview or a summary of what you're about to hear, but I take it rather that the narrator is providing an introduction to the book and also an introduction to the speaker in the primary speaker in Ecclesiastes. We see the narrator make a reappearance at the end of the book, starting in chapter 12, verse 8, but we'll, take, we'll save the last few verses for later in our conclusion today. Let's look briefly at chapter 12 and verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Keep in mind, once again, this is at the end of the book, a repeat of what we see at the beginning of the book. So in verse 8, the restatement of the motto or theme of Ecclesiastes. Verse 9 is going to give a sort of review of what we just heard. And by review, I mean both a summary and also an evaluation. Um, Let's see. Verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, 
and he, so he's evaluated as being wise. And he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. When the narrator speaks, he primarily uses third person when he speaks about Kohelet. When Kohelet speaks, he uses the first and second person and then loses the definite article, the. Um, there is one brief interjection even in chapter 7, verse 27. So right in the middle of the book. Let's examine that passage briefly in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 27. Um, Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation. Returning to the structure of the book generally, we also have a poem just before the introduction and an additional poem right before the conclusion. So our basic outline works like this. I know this is kind of hard to see, and I apologize for that. If you want to see it closer, you can come closer to the front. Maybe you can see it a little bit better. I'm just kidding. All right. So our basic intro, our basic outline works like this. We have introdu- intro, we have model int- motto introduced, excuse me. We have the writings of Kohelet, which include the opening poem that I already mentioned, several cycles of observations and instructions interrupted by a brief interjection by the narrator. Then we have the closing poem, which I believe is absolutely soul-crushing, and I'm so glad I don't have to read that part. Pastor Jim does. The, we have the motto restated, and finally, we have the epilogue. The red font on the screen should be um, what Coalette is when Coalette is speaking, and the white font would be the frame narrator, as commentators Michael Fox and Tremper Longman call him, because he frames the book in the beginning and the end, like bookmarks, if that, our book... Uh, book ends, excuse me. Uh, for a few examples of this structure in more modern culture, many of you would probably be familiar with the TV show from many years ago, The Twilight Zone. Do you know The Twilight Zone? Typically, the format would include a brief intro from the show's host, Rod Serling. This might include a hint of what's to come in that evening's episode, and then the bulk of the time is dedicated to the cryptic morality tale of some kind. And when the story's over, Serling would usually reappear, cigarette in hand, uh, Hevel, right, Uh, with some commentary on what you just watched. Uh, A more modern take uh, might be the movie The Princess Bride, right? The grandfather character reads the story to his under-the-weather grandson, and we, the viewers, get to listen in as the tale is narrated. And check in from time to time with grandfather and grandson, especially at the beginning of the end. Kohelet, by the way, would be right at home in the pits of despair uh, with the pale guy there, if you remember that scene. For one last example of this, if you've been in church long enough, you've no doubt heard a guest speaker be introduced by the pastor, give his sermon, which may or may not perfectly align with uh, the church's beliefs, and then after concluding, the pastor steps back up to the pulpit only to walk back some of the less orthodox things said by the guest speaker Let's all hope that doesn't happen today, right? And, and lastly, before we get to our chapter, I wanted to say a few words about the authorship of the book of Ecclesiastes. I do think the book itself is written by the anonymous narrator, which I do not think is the same as Kohelet, the primary speaker. Now, the real question, though, is who is Kohelet? I honestly do not know. I have no idea, truthfully. The more I read about it, the less I understood of it, I felt like. Um, 
And I don't have time to tell you about why I don't know, which is a weird paradox, I know. I do think that any valid answer has to at least address why the cryptic name Kohelet is used instead of the actual name. And I think, honestly, trying to pin down the identity of Kohelet is quite like chasing the wind, as the teacher himself might say. So let's jump into our text for the evening by turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 1. And we'll begin reading in verse 1. It will be up on the screen if you don't have a a Bible with you, but um, if you have trouble reading it, like I said, you might want to get your copy of Scripture out and turn to Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 1. Right, beginning reading in verse 1, chapter 9. For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. First, let's uh, look at that initial phrase there. um, For I have taken all this to my heart. All this, well, all that has preceded this verse. So the previous eight chapters of Kohelet's search for meaning here in this life under the sun, as it were. He continues considering the fate of both the righteous and wise men, which he considers to be in the hand of God. Normally, uh, this expression is used to speak of God's control or judgment. In this context, though, it doesn't really seem to be a comfortable thought. Uh, He recognizes God's ultimate sovereignty, but doesn't know whether man's deeds will result in a positive or a negative outcome. It's also worth pointing out that if these deeds of men are in God's hands, then they are definitely not in man's hands. Put another way, Kohelet doesn't recognize the Proverbs-like pattern of action and result. For example, a quick comparison uh, of some competing ideas between the wisdom, between the books of the wisdom literature in, in the Old Testament, that is, uh, the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. First in Proverbs 13, 9, the light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. Interesting. Now let's see how Job feels about this. His response isn't directly commenting on Proverbs, though it does sound like it. Job 21, verse 17 reads, how often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pains in his anger? For an Ecclesiastes example, let's look at chapter 7, verse 15. It doesn't directly use the lamp metaphor. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. This is hevel, the teacher says. It just doesn't make sense. I do think it's wise, pun intended this time, to approach the wisdom books as a whole, They each seem to provide a differing perspective, and they really do complement each other, though it might not seem like it initially on the surface. Proverbs gives us basic cause and effect, a framework that generally establishes a guide to how life should work, at least most of the time. Um, Ecclesiastes is very willing to remind you that things don't always work out the way you might expect here under the sun. Job, on the other hand, actually lives out the example of things not going the way you might expect. After all, Job is a righteous man, and for reasons unknown to him, he suffers immensely. Uh, Let's 
look back to our text in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 2. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean and the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This verse reminds me of the passage in Ecclesiastes 3 that John Hibbets covered a month or so back. You know, the one that the birds turned into a pop song in the 60s? That's crazy, right? That Solomon or whoever wrote Ecclesiastes uh, wrote a pop song, right? One commentator who seems to have been reading too much Ecclesiastes wrote about that passage that it contains 13 positives and 13 negatives. And when you add them all together, what do you get? Well, nothing. Moving back to verse 3 and advancing my slide, sorry. Um, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity. Another translation says delusion there. Um, I'll start rereading there furthermore. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. In verse 3, we get the first appearance of the under the sun expression in chapter 9. It will appear several more times. I know other men who spoke before me had made mention of this phrase as a way of highlighting Kohelet's way of describing this thought experiment that he's taking us on. In uh, Tremper Longman's commentary on Ecclesiastes, he describes the expression this way, and I'm quoting, while Kohelet sounds non-orthodox in the light of the rest of the canon, he presents a true assessment of the world apart from the light of God's redeeming love. His perspective on the world and life is restricted. He describes it as life, quote, under the sun. That is, apart from heavenly realities, apart from God. In other words, his hopelessness is the result of the curse of the fall without recourse to God's redemption. The end of verse 3 is quite abrupt. It seems to be intentionally abrupt as well, much like, well, death. Let's return to our text in verse 4 and continue. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. Verse 4 shares something like Kohelet's version of hopelessness uh, tinged with sarcasm. Well, like, like this. Well, if you're not dead, at least you have some hope. He then compares uh, the short, pithy proverb that even a living dog, an animal despised by most in the ancient Near East, is better than a dead lion, an animal that's respected and feared, unless, of course, it's dead. Uh, Verses 5 and 6 continue. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. At first, I was actually quite disturbed by that phrase in verse 5, but the dead do not know anything. Some like to use this as a verse that promotes soul sleep or something like a lack of consciousness in the afterlife, 
or worse, that Kohelet doesn't believe in the afterlife at all, like he mutters in chapter 3, verse 21. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? That word, uh, breath, gets translated as spirit, wind, or breath in Hebrew. We see that same word appear in Kohelet's stunningly beautiful conclusion, as I mentioned previously, as well as in chapter 12, verse 7, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit, that's the same word in Hebrew, will return to the God who gave it. In all of these passages, it doesn't seem to me that the teacher is asking if there is really life after death anyway. He's much more concerned with whether there's life before death, um, with all this injustice, with all this hevel that he sees all around him. But the final passage in chapter 12 likely gets to the conclusion of these matters, at least, um, but let's see. Kohelet seems possibly more secure in his afterlife idea, at least as compared to where he started. But back to verses 5 and 6 of chapter 9. It looks like Kohelet is pointing out a tragic irony. He says, what do the, death, what do the dead think about? Well, probably nothing. Now, what do the living think about? Probably death. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time that he'd toyed with us using irony or wordplay or those kinds, of, um, those kinds of things. The next part of verse 5 speaks to the memory of the dead being eventually forgotten. Tombstones are built to last, but time and the elements have a way of getting even to those of those of you that have observed a decoration day in the south can attest. The tombstone will come and go, and that mountain you just climbed up is still going to be there. On this topic, Spurgeon observed, a good character is the best tombstone. Those, those who you love and were helped by you will remember you when the forget-me-nots have, have withered. Carve your name on hearts, not on marble. By the way, do you know where, uh, where you'll find Spurgeon in heaven? The smoking section. Not a good joke, really. In, ver in verse 6, he used to smoke a pipe. Anyway, in, in, I think it was a pipe. In verse 6, we see another appearance of under the sun, the expression. This time, once the dead have passed, their loves, their hates, and their jealousies, really the whole gambit of human emotions, they all die with them. Let's look back at verse 7 and read on a bit, and thankfully we get a subject change. Uh, verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and, not oil, and, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, where you are going. He was doing so well to the, last, to the last phrase there. As is often the case, Kohelet takes us to the brink of despair and then walks us back from the edge slightly. In verses 7 through 9, he brings up one of life's greatest delights, a good meal with friends. 
In the whole of Ecclesiastes, we get several of these moments of reprieve from the talk of the inevitable march of time, the certainty of death, and the ravages of chance. The reprieve comes from relationships with others, people you love, your family, your friends, a good meal, and sunshine, like we saw outside today for a bit. The reference here to white clothing and oil for your head, most commentators think refer to a celebration of some kind of joyous event or festive thing. In addition, the extreme heat of the area could be a reason for both white clothing and also oil for the skin. Verse 9 mentions finding enjoyment in the woman you love. A woman could also be translated wife, as several other translations do. This verse only takes on a different meaning if you assume Solomon to, to be the author, as is tradition, as in finding enjoyment in the wife you love versus, well, I don't know, something else, since Solomon had so many wives. Um, the, word, the word fleeting in this verse also only appears, um, the, that's once again that Hebrew word hevel, this is the only appearance of that word in this chapter where it gets translated to mean short-lived or momentary. We also have two under-the-sun references in the same verse here. Uh, but even these good things should be enjoyed with a reasonable expectation that they can't last forever. You can enjoy going to the beach and get that sunshine you might want, but the tide is coming in. You can party all weekend and hope, that, uh, and hope it never ends, but Monday is right around the corner. Tremper Longman, whose commentary I cited earlier, says it this way, Such enjoyment, too, is a momentary respite from the tragedy and evil of the present world, no more and no less. Where do these meaningless days come from? The text leaves it implicit. He has given you. The context makes it quite clear that the he is God. After all, who else could do it? Th thus, this verse fits in with the others that speak of God giving things to humans. He continues to state that verse 10 climaxes Kohelet's appeal to enjoy life in the present, especially in view of death. He urges his listeners to act now because death brings everything to a stop. In addition, Kohelet lists four things he associates with life coming to an end. Those four things are activity, planning, knowledge, and wisdom. And he uses the word sheol, which sometimes gets translated grave, or realm of the dead. Verse 11 takes us into a new section and some ruminations on time and chance. Let's read verses 11 and 12. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor, of, favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time, like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it, is, when it suddenly falls on them. Now, Koalette has observed a sort of glitch in the matrix, if you will. He's observed that sometimes these bits of wisdom that you'll find in the book of Proverbs aren't exactly always true. He's lived long enough to see that the fastest runner doesn't always win the race. The strongest soldiers don't always win the battle. Bread doesn't always go to the wise, nor wealth to those with good decision-making. These examples best side with the earlier translation of hevel as nothing makes sense. Verse 
He's frustrated that these elements of human life that should be predictable are not predictable at all. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, creation has been subjected to futility. Is that word again? In the hope that creation, that is everything here under the sun, will be set free from its slavery to corruption. This inevitably leads man to frustration with his life as he realizes that nothing is really under his control. Verse 12 also gives us a chance to see those three important elements in Ecclesiastes, time, chance, and death, meet at a juncture when you least expect it. Next, starting in verse 13, we get an interesting anecdote from the preacher. Also, this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with a few men in it, and a great king came to it and surrounded it and constructed large siege works against it. But there was, a, there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. I have a little spreadsheet there for you. I know it's going to be hard to see. I hope you can see it. Verse 13 tells us that this story we just read left a large impression, right? So there's our column on the left that says greater, large, column on the right that says smaller, poor. Um, then he mentioned, so first of all, that this left a large impression. Then he mentions that this city is very small, so we have an obvious disadvantage. Um, with its small in quantity number of men, right? So the population is small. By contrast, the king that surrounded the city was great, uh, and the siege works that the king brought against it were great as well. Uh, in the city, um, among those few men lives one poor man. So we see the negative starting to... Uh, Oh, well, uh, they don't really do much, honestly. But, but this, one, this one man has one small advantage, and that is he's wise. We're not really told whether he has a small amount of wisdom or a large amount of wisdom. I decided to put it on the right. Um, I look, but this does turn out to be a significant advantage. Yet Kohelet says that this wisdom and the poor man win the day, but ultimately it seems the poor man is not remembered for his action and passes into oblivion. And the city lives on without fanfare or memorial for this poor man. Ultimately, we're led to believe that wisdom is superior to might, but even in the end, it can and often does result in a negative outcome. These things are simply not guaranteed in Scripture. Some people follow Christ for just this reason. That is, they think it will make their life here under the sun better. Kohelet has observed this glitch in the system is very real, and the prospect of your life getting better just because you follow Christ is frankly not wise. We know this is the expectation we have, though, because when things don't go as planned, our first response is often to blame God. Ecclesiastes serves as a wake-up call opposing those ideas, and this is not always a pleasant or a comfortable thing. In verses 17 and 18, we wrap up the chapter, but we also get an interesting contrast to the story we just heard. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. 
Verse 18 points out that just as the earlier poor wise man can save a city by his wisdom, the opposite is also true. One sinner can cause a great deal of destruction, even destruction of that which is good. The story of man, really. For some final thoughts on Ecclesiastes, let's return to the restated conclusion in chapter 12, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 8, and resume where the narrator frames his teaching. I'll give you a moment to turn there if you haven't. You need to drink more water, sorry. Verse 8, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Let's stop here for a moment. In verse 8, again, a restatement of the motto or theme of the speech or the writing. Verse 9 gives us an evaluation. The frame narrator says that Kohelet was wise and did lots of research to assemble or gather this collection of Proverbs. Verse 10 says that his words are true words, sometimes painfully so. Let's read on, though, through verse 11. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. Goads are apparently the pointed end of a shepherd's staff used to make or execute a painful correction to the sheep when needed. That makes the goad simile seem more apt of the narrator. In the book of Psalms, we see the more comforting rod and staff of the shepherd, but Ecclesiastes instead gives us the goad and the driven nail. Less comforting and way more corrective. Verse 12, But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Now he tells us. Verse 13 and 14 gives us some closure. Let me advance that, sorry. Um, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it be good or evil. I do believe that our frame narrator here is using a goad himself in his final, final conclusion. He says, you've heard Kohelet talk about the march of time, the inevitability of death, and the cruelty of chance. Here, this side of Eden, that is, here under the sun, but the thing you really need to fear is God. And how do you do it? Well, you keep his commandments. And why do you do it? Because everything you've done is getting judged. And not just what everyone knows about. The dark and hidden things, they're getting judged too. In his book on Ecclesiastes called A Time to Be Born, A Time to Die, Robert L. Short writes the following. I'm going to read a little bit of a lengthy quote here. In his book on... I read that. Therefore, there, there can never be a real final hope for man unless man first faces and fully takes into account the utter hopelessness of death. No man can really find peace in life unless he has first made his peace with death. Within the larger context of the Bible, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is essentially a kind of negative theologian, asking questions that can only be answered by a future revelation of God. In clearing the road for this revelation, 
by smashing any and all false hopes to pieces. The teacher, show, the teacher shows us human self-sufficiency stretched to its absolute limit and found sadly wanting, end quote. So now we're left with two problems. First, for the unbeliever, and second, for the believer. The unbeliever has a death and judgment problem. The, the death part is linked to the sin part, as Paul says in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That one man sure reminds me of the one sinner in Ecclesiastes 9.18 that destroyed much good. And for the judgment problem, let's look at Christ's teachings on death and judgment in the book of Luke, chapter 12 and verse 1. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Once again, Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. Luke 12, verse 1, under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he, this is Jesus speaking, began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Verse verse 2, but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the ho- upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We see in verse 2 those hidden things being revealed again as they were in Ecclesiastes. And in verse 4, the warning to not fear death, but rather to fear the judgment that follows death and the one who has the authority to condemn the sinner to eternal judgment. However, the desperate situation that man finds himself in at the end of Ecclesiastes finally does find resolution at the foot of the cross. Later in Luke in chapter 23, go ahead and turn there if you would, we have another example of this fear of God and judgment to look at. This example takes place while Christ hangs on the literal cross, an example again of the suffering of one truly righteous man, like Kohelet himself had noticed way back in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 15. All right, and we'll read this. Once again, Luke 23 and verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanging there were hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. The last verse I want to focus on is verse 40. This phrase spoken by the unnamed criminal, the sinner on the cross with Christ. He says to his fellow criminal, don't you fear God? Notice he doesn't say, don't you fear death? Which is what the godless man should say. In the next verse, though, we see him place his faith in Christ to save him from that judgment. 
This is what we too can find when we've abandoned the search for earthly fulfillment like we see in Ecclesiastes. The teacher tells us through his experiences that we can't find fulfillment in money, in our work, in our status, or in the pleasures we seek here under the sun. So where can they be found? Only in Christ's finished work. As for the believer, remember he has a problem too from Ecclesiastes. He has to live amongst all this hevel. Does the smoke on the screen bother you when it's, when it's up there? Um, sorry, it's hevel, right? It's going to be worse out there than it is in here. Um, what can he, that is believers, do when they come face-to-face with the unexpected outcomes of life? Well, the answer is to be found in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 9. This time I'm going to read it from the Net Bible. It's up there on the screen. So I reflected on all this attempting to clear it all up. I concluded that the righteous and the wise, as well as their works, are in the hand of God. The Christian must learn to accept that all of what happens here under the sun is in the hand of God. We can see this as a merciful and comforting truth, unlike those that don't share our beliefs. As for application, these truths we find in Ecclesiastes are probably some of the best tools we can use to help unbelievers think on and about these things. The topic of death is one that most people, for good reason, try to avoid. So our goal should be to live with the perspective that death is both inevitable and unpredictable. The unbeliever denies God, fears death, and possibly fears potential judgment, while the believer fears God but welcomes death and lives with the perspective that death is not the, the end of the matter. For our Lord and Savior has conquered death. Amen? And one day, death itself will die. But until then, some words of either comfort or warning, depending on which group you find yourself in, uh, death comes for us all. Pastor Jim.